Humans are not the truth monkeys that we tend to assume we are. We are actually more to do with being consensus monkeys who believe we are truth monkeys. And we have all kinds of mechanisms that gives us the excuse to, to adopt a consensus as our um, truth. And these mechanisms all evolved uh, for good reason, for our survival and our survival uh, collectively. Um, after all, we are talking about something that is collective. Ideas are collective things. Uh, notions, truth is something that can only be understood uh, intellectually. And it can be communicated from one person to the other, obviously. Now, this tendency to, to, um, to fool ourselves into thinking we realize truth when really we just, we just want to get along um, happens to us subconsciously and actually causes us to believe we understand what we often don't. So we pretend like we, our minds convince us that we understand something that we really don't understand. And, um, and then there's all these mechanisms built into that, that, that allow us to keep pretending. And we all have these things, all these, all these tricks we play on ourselves to, um, you know, not only just to live a relatively happy life, but also really to get along in terms of the fact that not everybody's going to have the same truth, but we all have this need to believe that we are, that we are amongst others who believe in our truth. And so we just kind of um, lie to ourselves about that too. And um, the main mechanism we use is is models, and most in the most important quality or characteristic of the models is vagueness. Vagueness, just the and, and excuses that allow vagueness, and that's really the way um, scientific theories that are wrong persist for very long periods of time, seemingly. Um, completely ignored, completely undisputed for long periods of time. And then suddenly something comes along and they, and the reality is they can't change it. And it's because it, it is important to understand that that's part of how they're able to persist for so long because humans do have this mechanism to where we accept truth as being something collective. You know, we believe what other people believe. Um, even though we think of ourselves as truth monkeys, we're not. We're consensus monkeys. We believe stuff that um, has to do with our survival. And if you think about it, if we spent all our time getting to the truth, um, if that was really what we were motivated uh, to achieve, we wouldn't really get along with each other well enough to... Um, collectively 
you know, work together to achieve our survival. You know, there's an important part of of our intellect, and that is getting along, and that's nothing, there's nothing bad about that at all. There's only, you know, well, there's mostly good about it. But when you are trying to seek truth, you have to have mechanisms to get through all that. You have to have ways of dealing with uh, these, these are, which are genuine problems. In, and that is, again, humans are not truth monkeys, but we believe we are. That's the problem. And that belief causes us, causes our minds to just shut down and, our, and we just lack the um, willingness to do the efforts that's involved to actually find the truth rather than just going along with the model. And that's where a lot of scientific discoveries will continue to be made. It's in things that right now are hidden by some model that was accepted as truth when really it was, was never really verified empirically and, and really was never even intended when it was first introduced to be anything but a conjecture you know, a model, uh, you know, how about this? And the, these things, if they go undisputed for long periods of time, they eventually get to the, the status of being sacred. You know, you, we, we cannot dispute certain uh, concepts. And it would, it, it creates, immediately creates negative emotions in people. Um, and that's, just a, a reality of science. That's a reality of the fact that we paint our picture to fit within the consensus. We aren't truth monkeys. Truth is something we have to work at very hard. And we have to use the, the methods, and that very simply is the scientific method. And you can therefore determine um, which disciplines, which of the various disciplines are really scientific or are they just, have they given up and they're just, they're just playing the, the truth monkey game? You know, the game where you pretend like you understand what you don't, but you don't really ever define anything, so you can't test anything. And that's what we can find in many of the various models of the various disciplines of science. But some of these models are very dominant in that they um, and kind of here's a big clue here's part of the reason a lot of these models these very dominant models exist is because there's something about them that appeals to the public and there's something or they themselves have worked very hard to make it appeal to the public meaning that they've use marketing as their means of getting the public to um, to buy in on some scientific or 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 pseudoscientific may you know often there's no such thing as a purely scientific thing in a lot of ways there there's always um, politics is associated with it and that mixes up with the whole psychology of masses you know uh, of what people want to believe and why and a lot of it has to do with our values
and that's why you know for example there there some of the worst um cases of of model models running away with a discipline happen in the climatic uh different climatic uh area which itself was just a artificial creation by the UN by the way there really is no need for any kind of a climate uh as a discipline it was created as a means of um of, of achieving certain agenda goals they had simply enough and uh, to some degree um, putting the screws to the oil industry as their means of getting funding and really let's face it now the UN is very much concerned with with one basic thing more than anything else and that is their own survival and that's just the reality of all political systems including all scientific disciplines is a lot of the things that are accepted are accepted because that's the only compromise they can make with the realities of society that dictate that unless this thing is believed by the public it doesn't get funded you know those are the realities that that we live in and that's why a lot of science really frankly it's it, it 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 can't be discussed publicly it's very much caught up in taboo because there's funding associated with it and there's there's implications of the funding and these implications have other implications and it, it all involves a system that that works around a somewhat um somewhat misrepresentative model it pretends to be um based on experiments and peer review but most of the time it's kind of based on um, observation and pal review and that's just the rea that's just another political reality of what's going on now this being the case um, you know I guess you could if you wanted to you could start a political you could start a movement and try to change science and that would be just just fine I don't see anything wrong with that but um, you wouldn't really be changing science, though. You'd be changing uh, human behavior because that's where the problem is. You know, the scientific method is just a method. Um, but um, ultimately, though, what it, it's what you got to realize about all this stuff, though, is that it's for for someone who is interested in the truth of science it shows you that you don't have a lot of competition because <laughs> relatively few people especially in certain disciplines you don't have a lot of competition there are i mean here's something to do sometime go on the internet and look up um theorist and meteorology and see what comes up most likely the only name that's going to come up is my name and that's because I'm you know outside of any institution and because academia has essentially made this one of their taboo areas you're not supposed to I mean believe it or not you really according to academia we we, we really shouldn't be discussing the atmosphere we should leave it to them because they want us to believe it's too complicated for those of us out here in the it's not too complicated they just don't understand it and they just don't want to admit it 
That's what the problem is. Yeah, believe it or not, academia can and often does act in their own best interest, including um, what scenarios they favor or they um, give credence to. You know, that's just part of the uh, part of the equation. Um, now, ultimately, if you want to get to the to the facts, you just simply have to look to the empirical evidence and ask, where's the empirical evidence? Um, and uh, you'd be amazed at how often it just simply doesn't exist and never did exist. And a really great example of this, um, well, there could be any number of examples. Like you, if you were to go into anthropology and look into theories of human evolution, you would see that they were just basically, they just had a few uh, notions they are, they're kicking around, but they're not really um, going outside the boundaries of what would be acceptable by society. And it's kind of understandable why they would do that. Um, but they're not, they're not asking the tough questions, let's say. But then there's another area. Um, my case, you know, it's meteorology. Um, there's an area where that's completely dominated by um, superstition. And you can read about that in an article I have on the internet entitled uh, The Missing Link of Meteorology's Theory of Storms. I think you could probably find it just by typing in that title or just go by my, my name, James McGinn and Missing Link Storms, something like that. And basically, I, I, I get to the point of that there's just certain assumptions that are part of the model. And these are sacred and you can't dispute them. And, and they don't dispute them and they'll never even discuss them with anybody. And it's just part of their their system. Obviously, you know, they're... They don't really, they don't encourage theory and they don't do experiments. And um, that's just the way meteorology is when it comes to our understanding of storms. Again, they don't do experiments and they don't discuss theory. Now, <clears throat> that makes it really easy for me. It makes makes it really easy for me to essentially stand out because I I do discuss these things and um, more importantly though um, it, it, because of that I was able to make the, the big discovery and that is the correct understanding of the role of water in storms that's the big one until you understand that it, you're not really going to understand the atmosphere. It's always going to seem strange to you why it's doing all these things, and that's always going to leave your mind twisted. And it's an, and it's, it's because you have to understand the importance of structure to how the atmosphere actually operates, and not allow it, allow yourself to be deluded by the current paradigm that wants you to tell wants to tell you that water is bringing energy to the equation. Water doesn't bring energy doesn't do that in any context in science. Um, water does conserve energy, but it also brings structure. And uh, those two together allow it to be the source of the streaming or the concentration of flow that we have in, in our atmosphere. 
water is extremely instrumental in that, especially with respect to bringing structure to the atmosphere, which otherwise would have none. Absolutely none. Because all there are, are are gases, and gases have no structural capabilities. It is only H2O, and it's only because of its surface tension that there's any structure in our atmosphere whatsoever. And it is the structure that allows for the concentration of energy that we witness as storms. And that, that's just the that's just the reality of it. Um, now, if you go back to meteorology, and I say go back because it really you do have to kind of go back to a kind of a a nineteenth-century way of thought, to where you think of um, you look at a pot boiling on a stove, and you you notice it has similarity similarity to a the clouds in a storm in terms of it's kind of like a plume. And you make direct comparisons to that, and that's what you call science. And that's kind of what they did. They just said, hey, look, water, um, you know, it has all these energetic qualities to it. We find it in steam trains. We find it in um, on pots boiling on stove, and it produces the stuff, and it goes up. And, you know, um, that seems like a good way to, for us to understand storms. It, it's basically the same process. And if you think there was anything more sophisticated underlying the convection model of storm theory, well, please tell, tell me what it is, because I've been looking for a long time, and I found absolutely nothing. How I just characterize it is perfectly accurate. They simply don't know what they're doing. It's just simply looking at a pot boiling on a stove and making an analogy, and that is the science that underlies the convection model of storm theory, a, a model that's been around for about 170 years. It's absurd. Now, we know why they've fallen upon these, this intellectual um, dead end, and that is there's deeper reasons, and the deeper reasons have go back to our understanding of, of the base understanding of physical reality, and that has to do with the exact nature of hydrogen bonding in water. Because until you understand that, there's no way in the world you're going to understand how H2O, H2O's surface tension can possibly be expressed in the atmosphere to produce the sheaths of the structural elements of our atmosphere that actually do the lion's share work of, of transport and our transport of winds, of flow in our atmosphere. There's no way you can understand that. It's completely shut off to you because of a mistake that was made back in the 1950s and it wasn't made by a meteorologist wasn't made by um, any school teacher or anything like that. It wasn't made by a commoner. It was made by Nobel Prize winning physics and chemistry theorists like Niels Bohr, 
and Linus Pauling. And the, and the mistake simply misunderstood the nature of the quantum mechanics of hydrogen bonding. That's where the mistake was made. They simply made a, a, a goofball error. And once that error is corrected, suddenly we have an understanding of water that not only resolves the anomalies of H2O, and I mean that literally, literally resolves them, but it opens the door and points the way to how surface tension in the atmosphere is being expressed on wind shear boundaries to serve as the conduit of the low pressure energy that's delivered at the location of storms. And that's what's coming up in my video series that I'm going to be um, hopefully putting out the first episode probably about a month or so. I just bought a camera and uh, got um, I have some sound equipment on the way and so I'm gonna have a nice little studio and I'm gonna be able to present what I just mentioned. That's the first thing I'm gonna present by the way is we're gonna present that mechanism, that mistake that was made by Niels Bohr and Linus Pauling back in the 1950s. I, I kind of refer to it as Pauling's omission. It's something he didn't tell us and that once that once you understand that mistake, you suddenly see why the H2O molecule has something that I refer to as variable polarity. And up to now, we've assumed it was static, not variable. It was just a constant source. And so we've misunderstood it. And this will fix what was misunderstood and completely explain the anomalies and the source of the structure that is evident in storms on on our planet so um, looking forward to that or you should be hopefully and like I said probably about a month or so okay thank you